Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Other times you need a deeper understanding of what's going on. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. To say it's been a wild 2020 in Illinois and Chicago politics would be an understatement. To avoid the loss of potentially tens of thousands of lives, we must enact an immediate stay-at-home order for the state of Illinois. We have commuted the sentence of Rod Blagojevic. He served eight years in jail. For the most part, things have stayed calm, but that doesn't mean those protesters haven't been loud and furious. Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan continues to lose Democratic support amid a corruption investigation involving ComEd. As the year comes to a close, we want to take a look back at the biggest stories in Chicago and Illinois' political scene. With me to help break down the headlines are two Chicago journalists who covered those stories and more. WTTW political correspondent Heather Sharon. Heather, always great to have you back. Thanks for having me. And David Grising, president of the Better Government Association. Hi, David. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Now, before we dive into the stories, I am curious. In less than three words, I want you to describe the political scene in 2020. Heather, let's start with you. Uh, unprecedented. I win. I get to have that one. Uh, <laughs> no fair. <laughs> uh, fraught um, and uh, divisive. Mm. David, your turn. Uh, chaotic, disrupted, and unpredictable. Interesting. Yes, I love those words. Now, it is hard to remember anything before the pandemic, so I want to start there, because uh, Illinois got its first confirmed case back in January, only the second confirmed case in the entire country, and then it wasn't long before Illinois responded. Heather, can you talk about some of the first actions that the state took in those early days? Well, it, it is hard to remember, but in fact, Chicago or Illinois, Chicago and Illinois had the first confirmed case of COVID-19 outside of Seattle. And I think that was my first um, indication that this was going to be very serious. It was a, a woman who had traveled from Wuhan, China, where the, the virus was first discovered. Um, and it sort of launched, I think, Illinois into an all hands on deck moment. And at the beginning, it was, um, you know, an attempt to keep people calm. There was a lot of talk about not panicking. And, and that lasted really until the beginning of March, when it was clear that the virus was spreading uncontrollably, and which eventually prompted first an order by the city that if you were sick, you needed to stay home. Home, mm -hmm. and then the enforceable stay-at-home order. And this is also one of the firsts that you just don't want to have. This is not a first that we want to, to Definite, brag about. Definitely right? not. Now, the definitely governor issued a, uh, a stay-at-home order for Illinois back in mid-March when cases were still, you know, compared to now at least, they were relatively low. And he, he got a lot of flack for that from the business community. And residents who didn't want to stay home and also suburban mayors who said, you know, COVID wasn't a problem in their towns. David, can you remind us about what was going on then? Well, it was the beginning of a pushback on the part of both business and religious groups, as well as conservatives, especially downstate, who challenged the Governor Pritzker's stay-at-home order in court and in the public square. 
and built a lot of resistance, especially in some of the downstate communities, even though in the southwestern part of the state, uh, Madison County and that area east of St. Louis, was one of the biggest and most intense areas of COVID, uh, COVID episodes. And so uh, it, it, this, has be, this has been an ongoing issue. And, in fact, it may be a contributing factor in what proved to be a big difference between the beginning of the year when Illinois was one of the top five states in fighting COVID and later in the year in the recent surge when Illinois has been among the bottom five, the poorest performing states, uh, the no longer having a stay-at-home order and instead a stay-at-home advisory was partly Governor Pritzker's response to the pushback he got. And the advisory has been far less effective, and we've seen the case count and the, uh, the, the positivity index go way up, way beyond what it was early in the year. So, David, considering all of that, how would you grade Governor Pritzker's response to the pandemic? I think overall the governor has been uh, very persistent in doing the best he can against really uh, daunting uh, factors, including the political pushback that he's gotten. I I think he deserves fairly high marks for uh, staying in the game, for putting himself and his entire staff uh, at work on this issue and dealing with uh, with a really pressing problem, especially because it's not just Illinois that's had this issue. It's the surrounding states. Some of the surrounding states, Iowa, has been second uh, against uh, up the, behind South Dakota in terms of the, the, the rate of uh, positive testing. And so he's been facing incredible odds and I think by and large dealing with it fairly well. If you zero in on Chicago, Mayor Lori Lightfoot was more or less in lockstep with the governor when it came to responding to COVID. But she was facing a more concentrated problem, a highly dense population still congregating in small spaces or flocking to the lakefront. And things got tense. This is how it's going to be. We will shut you down. We will cite you. And if we need to, we will arrest you and we will take you to jail. Period. There should be nothing unambiguous about that. Don't make us treat you like a criminal. But if you act like a criminal and you violate the law and you refuse to do what is necessary to save lives in the city in the middle of a pandemic, we will take you to jail, period. Heather, I I was in Washington at the time, and I remember Mayor Lightfoot making the national stage at the time. Remind us of some of the actions that she and her team took over the last year. Well, we heard her shut down the lakefront and we heard her sort of lean into this sort of notion of um, Auntie Lori and that she was going to come find you. And she, you know, we saw all of the memes that she, you know, really embraced, you know, with her sort of stern look on her face. But I would push back just a little bit on the notion that she's been in lockstep with Governor Pritzker. And there have been two, I think, important areas where they have quietly but publicly disagreed with each other. One, the mayor urged the governor not to close schools in in mid-March at sort of the start of the pandemic. She really sort of tried to convince him that that was going to be just really the wrong way to go, especially for Chicago's poor children who relied on schools for a safe place to go and somewhere to eat. They also disagreed about the role of indoor dining and drinking on spreading COVID-19. And we saw that clash last from May all the way through, you know, October when the, the mayor sort of 
publicly on national television said, hey, don't do this, Governor Pritzker. And, and the governor, you know, politely thanked her for her feedback and ignored her. So mm. um, I think that those two sort of indications of where they sort of the two Democrats sort of split, I think, is indicative of sort of the different challenges that they each face. You know, Governor Pritzker had to lead a whole state. Um, and in the early days, you know, David was is exactly right. There were there were counties in Illinois that only had a handful of COVID-19 cases. And many people downstate thought that this was just a Chicago problem. Now, yeah. obviously, in recent months and weeks that has become sadly not true at all but um so he had to face those issues where as mayor Lori lightfoot had to really sort of deal with a pandemic that was hitting black and latino chicagoans much harder than white chicagoans and and she sort of had to to grapple with that really heartrending disparity um as best she could so with that in mind heather how would you grade her response well, you know, I think it's still very much a work in progress. And I think that both Governor Pritzker and Mayor Lightfoot will be judged on sort of how quickly they get people vaccinated and whether the people vaccinated first are those most at risk from serious illness and death, again, Black and Latino Chicagoans. Um, but it, and it will also sort of depend, I think, in what we will begin to see over the next week or so, whether um, Chicago schools do reopen. Uh, the yeah. first preschool teachers and special education teachers are set to return um, on Monday. Um, it is not clear whether the union will move to block that. And then the first students are to return January 11th with elementary school students to return in February 1st. That will happen before even the first Chicago public school teacher will be vaccinated based on federal guidelines. So I think we're still very much in the thick of it. And, you know, it seems like a couple of times during this pandemic, there's been a rush by us in the media to say, okay, let's look back, let's judge, you know, it's over. And, yeah. and I, I can't emphasize enough how not over it is. It's far from over. Yeah. Um, yes. WTTW political correspondent Heather Sharon. Also with us is BGA president David Grising. And we're rounding up the top political stories in Chicago and Illinois from 2020. Let's turn to another story from this year that we can't ignore. In the midst of the pandemic, you had the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, which, of course, we felt that across the country, including here in Chicago. David, what kind of response did we see here in Chicago? Well, we saw uh, street protests and uh, that, that covered, you know, started downtown and led to uh, looting and, uh, and uh, rioting downtown. Uh, obviously, these were opportunists taking advantage of the legitimate uh, freedom of speech that was happening in response to a record of police brutality nationwide and in the Chicago Police Department. And, uh, you know, Mayor Lightfoot correctly pointed out that these opportunists, they, they came in sort of caravans in some cases, mm -hmm. groups of cars riding downtown, riding to suburban malls, looting and just taking advantage. And the police um, proved not really up to the task, despite in some cases days of warnings on social mm -hmm. media that this was going to happen. It's obviously hard to police an entire city and predict where these people will wind up. But it was shown that, that Chicago's responsiveness, the Chicago Police Department's responsiveness, especially to the hints on social media as to what was happening, were not, up, were, were not in proportion to the serious threat to public safety that occurred. Yeah, CPD and the mayor received a lot of blowback for their handling of the protests and, and the looting. 
Absolutely. And and we had a situation that really kind of symbolized the uh, rich city, poor city demarcation when the city, as a as a, a legitimate defensive measure, raised the bridges across the Chicago River. But this, to many, symbolized that Chicago was defending especially the wealthy area on the, in the Magnificent Mile uh, and, and seemed to symbolize that they were trying to put up the drawbridges to yeah. prevent uh, the free flow to, to people from moving freely throughout the city. So it, it, it hit again on the issue that Heather mentioned earlier, which is the, the wealthy, the, the wealth gap, the income gap, and the race gap in the city of Chicago. Now, Heather, we also saw protests around the Christopher Columbus statues in Chicago. That's when 18-year-old activist Miracle Boyd had her teeth knocked out by police. And those statues were ultimately taken down by the city. And there was also a push to change the name of Stephen Douglas Park to Frederick Douglas Park and the removal of the Stephen Douglas statue from the state capitol's lawn. Talk about how 2020 became the year of social justice movements. Well, I think this is perhaps one of the most lasting legacies of the uprising after um, George Floyd's death in Minneapolis police custody. I think that a lot of people... um, opened their eyes and saw sort of these issues that have been an issue for, you know, years, if not decades, and just basically found the collective will to do something about it. Um, You know, it it was several years ago when Alderman attempted to change the name of Balboa Drive for Ida B. Wells, the the iconic civil rights um, activist and investigative journalist, only to find themselves blocked by the Italian-American community, many of the same people who were protesting the removal of the Columbus Day statues. So these, these issues are nothing new, but there seems to be a more willingness willingness to sort of, you know, tackle them head on, although it's still very much a work in progress. There's also a move and a council debate to rename Outer Lakeshore Drive for Jean-Baptiste Pointe du Sable, who was um, a native of Haiti and the first black person to settle the Chicago area and what became Chicago as the city. He founded a trading post, of course. Um, But that is sort of mired in debate about the cost and whether it's appropriate. Um, So this is all very unresolved, especially because the mayor formed a commission to sort of address these issues um, after the Columbus statues were taken down in the middle of the night. However, we've not heard any sort of results or recommendations from those commissions, which which means it's a pretty safe, safe yeah. bet that if we would were to do this a year from now, we'll still be talking about these issues. David, so much more to unpack from 2020. There's the, the second round of looting that happened after the Englewood police shooting, uh, the police shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin, which is 50 miles north of Chicago, of course. More recently, that footage that was released of the wrongful raid on Anjanette Young's home on the city's near west side. How has this year affected the relationship between police and the community? Well, uh Clearly, at least all of the differences are on the surface right now. But uh, the Antoinette Jordan uh, raid, I think, is emblematic of the lack of trust and and the grounds for a lack of trust on the part of the community. Uh, These police raided uh, the wrong apartment, uh, came in to a a woman who was undressing from work, uh, had no clothes on. She was not treated respectfully. And then the way that the police department and the city's law department clamped down on evidence of this botched raid, uh, you know, denying 
uh, Ms. Jordan access to the videotapes from the body cams, mm-hmm. uh, going to court to prevent uh, CBS2 from airing the videotapes that they, 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 they obtained access to, et cetera. There's been, uh, the mayor has scrambled to put the best face on this. She's acknowledged that, she, that there has been a loss of trust. She tried to meet with, meet with Ms. Jordan, and then that has become a political, that whole issue has become a political football. It just shows how, whole, how fraught the policing issue is in the city of Chicago. And Mayor Lightfoot's hand-picked uh, Superintendent David Brown really has not succeeded in winning the support of the city. Uh, he was undermined over Memorial Day weekend after Mayor Lightfoot announced that he had failed in his first big test. And he has never completely recovered from that, frankly. Even though he, he, at press conferences, he does say the right things and he's trying hard, but he just hasn't really had a big success just yet. Now, let's turn back to earlier in the year when President Trump commuted the sentence of former Illinois Governor Rod Blagojevich. David, when that story broke, what was your reaction? Oh, uh, a lack of surprise, but a lot of sadness, because, frankly, the campaign to release Rod Blagojevich was obvious on the part of his wife, Patty Blagojevich, and it's understandable why she would want her husband released, but uh, he did nothing. He's he's never really um, admitted to the crimes that he committed against the state of Illinois, against the people of Illinois, and it, it, you know, if justice prevailed, he would have served out his full sentence. At the time, it seemed like Blagojevich was ready to jump back into the public sphere in some capacity. But, of course, the pandemic put a kibosh on any plans there. And he's kind of laid pretty low since then. Heather, have we heard anything from him lately? Well, you know, he campaigned a little bit for the Republican nominee who ran against Dick Durbin for the United States Senate seat. Um, That drew a little bit of media attention. It seems, though, that he has become best known, uh, however, for his cameo recordings where you can pay him a little bit of money and he will wish your best friend a uh, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, sarcastic happy birthday. Um, But he has not sort of proven to be a political force in, in any way. Um, And it's one of those sort of uh, twists of fate that I think a lot about that, you know, he he was, you know, allowed to leave prison after so many years only to have to quarantine almost immediately after, you know, leaving prison. And it is just one of those twists of fate stories that are just everywhere you look in 2020. Well, Trump commuting Blagojevich's sentence was just one of many bizarre pardons that he would go on to do. What message did he send with this one, Heather? Well, it was... I think quite explicit, because if you can remember, uh, Rod Blagojevich was convicted essentially by Patrick Collins, the former U.S. attorney, who was good friends with um, Jim Comey. They were part of, you know, sort of the whole Justice Department culture. And this was, you know, explicitly framed by Patty Patty Blagojevich, the former governor's wife, who went on Fox News to sort of speak directly to the president to say, look, the same people who you believe are attacking you through the investigation of your campaign's Russian collusion during the 2016 campaign, uh, 
they they got my husband. So, you know, if you want to get back at them, release him. It, it was it was very explicit and very clear. And I think that that has continued in recent weeks of we, as we've seen the president first commute, but then pardon Roger Stone, who was also convicted as part of the, the Mueller special counsel investigation, along with his former campaign chair, Paul Manafort, as well as Chicago and George Papadopoulos, who has sort of intimated that he has political ambitions in Chicago in the years to come. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it's really all part of the same sort of attempt by the president to, to, to discredit the, the Russian investigation um, and sort of its its findings that while there might not have been enough evidence to prove that the, the president's campaign worked with Russians, mm-hmm. um, there were certainly a number of, of contacts that raised a significant number of questions. Well, speaking of corruption in Springfield, another big story this year, the ComEd bribery scandal. Um, David, this one's uh, quite complicated. A lot of executives, lawmakers, lobbyists, give us the gist here. What, what happened and, and why do we care? Well, the big the big charges against uh, uh, Michael Madigan, the House Speaker's, uh, one of his closest political confidants, uh, Michael McClain, who um, really was a Mr. Fix-It uh, for Madigan, and according to the allegations in the in the uh, uh, indictment, McLean basically was a go-between between Commonwealth Edison, which has a lot of business before the state, and the Speaker of the House. Even though uh, Mike Madigan has not been charged with any crime and says he did nothing wrong, mm-hmm. uh, the indication in the allegations again and again is that that McLean helped to uh, to create jobs for Madigan cronies no work jobs in some instances, that in fact that, that succeeded in putting uh, a, a board member of Commonwealth Edison, a uh, political associate of Madigan's, onto the board of Commonwealth Edison, and Promise Yori, the, the CEO of Commonwealth Edison, who resigned in the face of this scandal, seemingly was complicit in all of this. There are indications in the charge that, that she said basically, you know, do, do this. I don't want to be getting a call from the speaker saying that he wants something done again. Uh, this indicates that if she ends up testifying, she may be able to say that she had direct conversations with Mike Madigan. But again, Mike Madigan has been very good over the years of leaving very few footprints and fingerprints on anything he does, mm-hmm. much less allegedly doing something illegal. And so the, the jury is not even gathered, much less out on the question of whether Madigan ultimately will face uh, criminal charges or or in the end being found guilty of them is a different matter entirely. Well, Heather, Madigan has also gotten so much Democratic support in recent months, you know, with the governor, Mayor Lightfoot, and, and Democratic lawmakers in Springfield calling on him to, to step down. Was 2020 a turning point for his long career? Well, I think we're going to have to wait and see. Until the Democratic House caucus meets in January, it is not clear whether he will not have the votes to to stay as speaker. And if he doesn't, it's hard to overstate sort of what a seismic change that will mean in Illinois politics. However, we've not yet seen a, a strong challenger sort of announce a public campaign for speaker. So, while so right now and for several weeks we've been in this sort of weird limbo where Madigan does not appear to have enough 
votes. He needs 60 to stay as speaker, but there's no real challenger. And when you have somebody as powerful as Mike Madigan, as somebody who's as knowledgeable as Mike Madigan, um, who's just basically, you know, he he knows sort of what everybody needs and how to give it to them. You know, I am reluctant to write his political obituary until he actually falls, because it's just not clear that he won't be able to pull another proverbial rabbit out of the hat. Well, let's stay in Springfield and turn to another story, and that's the state budget. Of course, if our budgets were once precariously teetering over a financial cliff, the pandemic came in and it just threw it right over the edge. Right, Heather? Absolutely. Um, There was a bit of a glimmer of hope in recent weeks that the latest COVID-19 relief package would include aid for states and cities like Chicago and Illinois that desperately need it. However, that sort of was not part of the final package that the president finally signed into law just in recent days. That leaves Illinois facing really the, the worst of all worlds. Its budget deficit is so large that it really has the state really has no other option but deep cuts and likely income tax hikes. And because the so-called fair tax amendment failed in November, that tax hike will be felt across the board because Illinois still has a flat income tax, which means that everybody pays the same rate, whether they're a billionaire or if they're just making minimum wage. So um, assuming that the that the General Assembly does meet in January, despite sort of still extremely high COVID-19 cases, mm-hmm. um, they will face really no good options to, to balance the budget. And it will mean that the governor will have to to sort of perhaps put on the back burner some of his priorities, such as um, increasing spending on education and human services and social services. Um, And it means that the city, which had a $1.2 billion budget deficit in 2021, uh, likely will not be able to go back and rethink um, a huge amount of borrowing that made balancing its budget possible as well. Well, David, both Pritzker and Lightfoot repeatedly urged the federal government to provide financial aid to states and municipalities. Did those pleas fall on deaf ears? Well, seemingly so far, certainly they fell on deaf ears with Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who really has been wary of doing anything to bail out states that have been profligate in their spending. And Illinois has been cited as Exhibit A there. Uh, The game is not over yet. Uh, There will, you know, uh, President-elect Biden has indicated that he plans to help the states, and that will be a top priority uh, for him once he takes office. Mm-hmm. A lot will depend on the uh, vote, the, the runoff vote in Georgia, where uh, two incumbent senators, Republican senators, face spirited challenges uh, from uh, two very capable Democratic opponents. And we're seeing record amounts of spending on those two races. So this is not over. But to, to tell you the, the size of the problem in the current budget, President or or Governor Christopher faces about $4 billion uh, of a a deficit, $2 billion of revenue losses from Mm -hmm. COVID alone. And he was hoping for more than $2 billion from the federal government to borrow from the federal government, the Federal Reserve. Um, It's unclear whether those monies will be available, given some of the last minute uh, gamesmanship on the part of Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. And so when you look into the abyss of the deficit planning for uh, Governor Pritzker, it really is 
kind of breathtaking, especially as Heather intimated, there's not even a clear plan for how the how the legislature can meet in January because of COVID problems. Yeah. And the law requires them to meet in person. They have to address that to, to make a change before they can even do any meaningful business. Well, as we wrap here, Heather, talk to us about what you think was the biggest political story of the year. Well, it has to be COVID-19 and um, it has to be how um, everybody from the mayor through the the city council and and the governor sort of handled its impact on um, people. And I think that we sort of are still in the midst of it. So it's hard to sort of know what its lasting impacts will be, but it would it has you know, without a doubt, shown a very unflattering light on the uh, systemic racism and the systemic inequality that is rife with in Chicago and Illinois. And, you know, I often think about how on Valentine's Day, uh, February 14th, so really about a month before everything shut down, the mayor Mm -hmm. unveiled sort of a grand plan to address generational poverty and to sort of get at those root causes of crime and and all of these things that have become, you know, so apparent in our society. And of course, that all, you know, was just sort of lost in the the deluge of of illness and honestly, death. Yeah. Looking ahead to 2021, David, what are your predictions? If you had a crystal ball. Well, I think that COVID will continue to rack, wreak havoc across the state and the leadership capabilities of both Governor uh, Pritzker and Mayor Leifert will continue to be tested. The policing issue, it, it's ironic that the, the governor was elected promising the, the so-called fair tax and he lost on that. And Mayor Leifert was elected uh, with the idea that she could solve she, Chicago's policing problem, and that has continued to be her biggest challenge. So watching in 2021 to see if either Governor Pittsburgh has a resolution for the state's fiscal challenges or Mayor Lightfoot can solve some of the policing problems will be one of the, we'll spend a lot of time doing that in the year ahead. Quickly, uh, we didn't mention that this was a census year, and that has some political implications for Illinois. What should we expect, David? Well, uh, we're going to expect to see a new uh, map drawn, and this could be the first time in decades that that Mike Madigan has not controlled that process. Uh, the BGA has published a so-called a fair map that is stands in contrast to the badly gerrymandered Illinois map. And now we'll also see Chicago's political map being redrawn as well based on census results, and that's yeah. going to be a fraught process. So uh, there's a lot on the line. Uh, for Illinois as that all happens. What a year it's been. That's David Grising, president of the Better Government Association, and Heather Sharon, political correspondent for WTTW. Heather, David, thanks so much for spending time with us and rehashing all the crazy political stories of the year. Have a happy new year. Happy new year. And that's it for the Reset Podcast, just for 2020, that is. To hear more conversations like this around the important stories in Chicago and beyond, hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. You'll get a fresh reset in your feed Monday through Friday, and even some bonus podcasts on the weekend. And take one minute to give us a rating. It really helps other people find us. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet again in the new year.
If you need a break from the news, WBEZ's Nerd App Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club. Listen to Nerd App wherever you get your podcasts.